When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jess, and this week we have a very special guest. In honor of Halloween this weekend, we have the fabulous Violet Fenn with us today to talk about her book, A History of the Vampire in Popular Culture, Love at First Bite, which is out now from Pen and Sword. Now, I had so much fun with this interview, and Violet is the most amazing guest. I'm sure you'll agree. So we're going to go ahead and jump straight to that interview portion and let Violet take it away and tell us all about vampires in history and media. Well, Violet, thank you so much for being here with us today. How are you doing? I'm, I'm great. Yeah, it's cold suddenly. It's winter, isn't it? But yeah, no, I'm, I'm thrilled <laughs> to be here. If, if anyone wants, you know, I'll sit and talk about vampires to anybody. So yeah, this is great. Oh, that is wonderful. Well, we're so glad to have you here and for our Halloween episode as well. Fantastic. We're so glad you could make it. Now, um, me and John have been reading this book this week, and it is just fantastic. We got the audio book, the whole nine yards. So um, now just to start talking about vampires for people who aren't necessarily familiar with the history. Um, vampires, as you know, we're kind of talking about in your book, they they really kind of hit that popular culture. They really became um, something kind of in the in the 19th century but of course the whole idea of the vampire is actually much older how did this whole thing start um oh god how long have you got so <laughs> you know it, it's one of those really it, it goes back to the you know the starts of time really the vampires we know it obviously didn't exist until Polidori wrote the novella the vampire with a y in 1819 mm-hmm. um but the idea of the blood-sucking creep sort of thing is as old as time itself, almost literally. Um, be- but before Polidori and um, Ostenfelder, a German poet called Ostenfelder, wrote um, Der Vampir in 1780-something, I think. Um, his was a bit rapey, his vampire. You'd have to oh, read Lord. to understand. It, not, a, not particularly, you know, um, the same sort of angle as the glamorous slightly more recent ones but um yeah until those two sort of stories came out before that they were really um more accurately revenants so just the undead um they're more zombie than sexy vampire but they are they are vampire-esque so it goes back to ancient greek mythology you've got um lovely old zeus who um took up with lamia and his aggrieved wife um hera trying to remember all the names now Hera killed Lamia's children as revenge for her husband's infidelity um and inflicted Lamia with insomnia because it's always the other woman's fault obviously obviously. um obviously um let's not go down that road but anyway inflicted, (laughs) inflicted um Lamia with insomnia so that she could never sleep and would be doomed to think about her loss forever. Oh, in, ter- in turn, Zeus, who was obviously, you know, the kind boyfriend, gave Lamia the ability to remove her eyes. Um, presumably, having your eyes out means you can sleep. Um, yeah, in, that in makes it to- better. 
uh, exactly. Well, this is Zeus. You know, Zeus <laughs> had weird issues, didn't he? He had some strange morals. So he gave her an ability to remove her eyes to get some peace. Lamia, fairly understandably, I think, got her revenge on humanity by sucking the blood of young children as they slept. Um, and this kind of, even this far back, this this is ties into the tale of Lilith. Adam's first wife in the Garden of Eden, who is cast out for not bowing to men and this sort, yes. of, this sort of, you know, because she was cast out of the Garden of Eden for wanting to be Adam's equal and not his subordinate, um, which is why she was replaced with Eve. And um, so this sort of, and then then she in turn, over the years, got turned into the myth of a baby killing monster. So you've got those stories already, but even earlier in two thousand. 2400 BC, I think. Um, you've got the Sumerian king list, which is Gilgamesh and his friends. Um, and Gilgamesh himself is listed on the king list as a Lilu, which is a demon that preys on women and molests them in their sleep. Oh Lord. Um, and this go, this is your, and I think the female version was a Lilutu. Um, there's so much terminology and dates and everything that I do occasionally slip up. So, um, but yeah, he Gilgamesh was listed as a Lilu, so they had an awareness of it back then of of you otherworldly beings molesting people, um, and even the Jewish Book of the Pious, the Sefer Hasidim, which somebody I'm sure will correct my pronunciation of that in the 13th century, um, that talks of Astraea who sucked her victim's blood through her hair. So this theme has been going for a very long time. Um, it sort of hits more what we consider to be vampires in the 1700s, famously with Joseph Fluckinger in Serbia, who wrote a report of um, the dead rising in a Serbian village to feed on the living. Um, and newspaper reporters, because newspapers were making their mark by this point, newspaper reporters and all sorts went to, to witness this. Um, and panic-stricken villagers were digging up corpses and staking them because they said they were bloated and they hadn't decomposed, you know, and therefore they must be vampires. It's far more likely, fairly obvious to a modern eye, that something such as TB or whatever tuberculosis was going around and the bloat was purge, purge fluid building up in the system. And, you know, obviously not everybody's got as dark a sort of interest as I have, but I'm sure you'll know what I'm talking about here, Jess. (laughs) Not that I'm judging or anything, but I'm pretty sure you know this. Um, As corpses decay, you know, they bloat first and you've got this buildup of purge fluid. So a, a lot of corpses, if you dug them up, would look bloated and might look like there's blood coming from their mouths. But it isn't. It's part of the natural decomposition process. So that was reported in newspapers. I've gone back through archives and find newspaper reports of the time who are reporting this as sort of um, as vampiric activity. And, and, you know, they are using the word at this point. Um, and then the biggest one sort of in the 1800s that people generally know about is the New England vampire panic, which is Mercy Brown. Um, she died in 1892 and she was one of the last in her family to die. All of her siblings, bar one, and her mother had already died. Um, and therefore, they all got sick, slowly got sick, and then died one after the other. Therefore, the obvious apparent reason was that Mercy was a vampire, purely for the sake she was one of the last ones to die, who had been feeding off 
her family in order to stay alive longer than they had. Um, How on earth did they arrive at that conclusion? Literally, it's it, it seems to be literally because she lasted longer. She was the last one. This, she's not an isolated incident. She's one of the most well-known ones. But tuberculosis particularly, you know, obviously it's also known as consumption. So, and it literally slowly sort of consumes the, the will to live almost as well as strength and whatever. Oh, of course, it's miserable. Yeah. So I suppose people were watching entire families fading away one after the other. And what was actually happening with hindsight from a modern viewpoint is that they were getting sick from each other or from the same source of infection or whatever and just slowly succumbing one after the other but because people didn't understand the transference of disease or bacteria or you know any sort of infections at that point it had to be something almost sort of magical supernatural because they couldn't see it so therefore it didn't exist so there is a massive tendency around that time to assume that something supernatural is killing people if they if they can't find another reason for it um and Mercy just happened to be one of the last ones to die. So she was, um, she, well, they couldn't bury her for a while because it was actually the middle of the winter. I think she died in the, in the January in um, 1892. And it was, everything was frozen. She had to be kept in a crypt for a little while because they couldn't even dig the ground. Mm. Now, when people started kicking off and saying she must have been the vampire, they wanted to take her out and stake her. And the remaining family, a father and a brother weren't keen, but they were persuaded to do it. And, you know, ta-da, she hadn't decomposed. Well, a local doctor actually pointed out it's really cold. Right. You know, it's really cold. She's in, in a freezer. Of... of course she hasn't. Yeah, of course she hasn't decomposed, but they wouldn't listen. And they insisted that she must be so... So they took out her heart and lungs and they burnt them on a funeral pyre, a small little makeshift funeral pyre. Like, just in case. Well, that wasn't the end of it. What they then did was they ground the ashes up with water and fed it to her brother. What? In the, in the hope of it curing him, they had some idea of sort of immunities and vaccinations by this point. So the, I, I think that's suppose their logic was you take the, the burnt innards of the vampire, as it were, you grind them up and consume them. And then because there are older myths and stories and folk legends that if you eat something belonging to the vampire, it loses its power over you. So I'm assuming it probably came from that um but it used to be things like you eat the vampire's bread not that you eat the vampire's innards you know it's, it's <laughs> like don't bit. eat his lungs yeah yeah, you know, <laughs> have his bread and butter but don't eat his lungs but um that's a little bit more <laughs> but no they took out poor old mercy i think she, she was a teenager when she died um so they took her heart and lungs burnt them on a funeral pyre ground them up fed them to her brother who unsurprisingly died um and um yeah so they, they, um, but they, they acknowledge afterwards, since it's fairly widely acknowledged that that it was tuberculosis, you know, um, and it was just going through and just because people didn't understand it. But people have been trying to understand this for so long. You've got um, there's always this thing of wanting. Some people will always want to understand what what nobody else does. You go back to 1590s or whenever it was. I'm not great on kings, but King James of um, Britain and some point Scotland. You, you can see the gaps in my historical knowledge here. Oh, you're um, fine. <laughs> was fascinated by the undead. He wrote a book of demonology. This is King James who wrote the King James Bible. Oh, that's incredible. Also wrote a book of demonology. Um, and he went into great detail about incubus and succubus and the mechanics of 
taking the sperm from a living man without him knowing and getting it to a woman so that the incubus could impregnate the woman the demon could impregnate the one with a human man sperm he even gets into the details of how quick he'd have to do it before it went cold oh my um, god so he's a pioneer of a uh, artificial insemination there yeah. basically yeah <laughs> it's crazy just as long as it was demon insemination okay um, <laughs> so yeah so so yeah the, the, there's been versions of it all over the place it's not specific there's african ones there's there's my favorite the um the chicken and i can never say the word sudurki the sudurki i think it is it's the miracle chicken um and it's kept under your armpit and you have to keep feeding it or it eats your soul or something things like this but i love the miracle chicken um, <laughs> you know and, and it's an actual rooster you know demon a demon man that's turned into a rooster and he and he tucks under the arm and women supposedly handed him on to their daughters presumably hadn't ate them first you know so and and these are sort of african and whatever um myths or, and traditions so they've they've they appear all over the world but they weren't vampires as we know them, you know, until really until Polidori wrote about them. As I said, this is this is like two last two hundred years, really, vampires. Right. For a lot of that time, the power for right for getting published was male. So you're getting the man's version. You know, of course, there were women writing at that point. Of course, there were. But don't forget Mary Shelley, when she wrote Frankenstein, didn't have her name on it to start with because people wouldn't believe it was written by a woman. Mm. So we're still in that era, really, because Polidori's vampire was written on the same weekend away as Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. That must have been Um, a heck of a weekend. I think that that was a a proper sort of teenage 20 something weekend away, wasn't it? That was that was that was some fun. Incredible. Actually, I think it would just have been overly hysterical and really irritating most of them. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so, so you've got things that have been, have got a male viewpoint. You know, the male gaze comes into it a lot. So particularly early on. And then by the time it's got into the movies and whatever, it's taken an awful long time for it to pull back and get back. So we've got a template for something that hasn't actually um, existed for very long, but has very quickly become so popular that it's almost locked into this certain view. Whereas actually it's um, it doesn't need to be anything like that, you know, right. and and most of this comes back to the view of what the male cape vampire looks like comes back to Byron, which is only 200 years ago. Right, so, exactly. So what can you tell us about Byron exactly? So how but, did he influence all this? I know there's <laughs> a lot here. Uh, yeah yeah um we've known each other long enough for you to know my feelings on byron um actually i really like byron i've i've learned a lot more about him and i i think i probably judged him unfairly for a long time um byron is really the framework on which the modern vampire was built because um polidori based his novel firstly on a fragment of a story that byron had written at that weekend Polidori didn't write the vampire that weekend he took a fragment of a novel which was actually titled a fragment by Byron um he took that away with him because Byron didn't want it and he asked he was Byron's physician and he asked if he could keep it and he took it and he then wrote it into a longer story into a novella um and it was actually originally published under Byron's name because the publisher knew it would get more sales but it was Polidori that wrote it um so he 
Polidori was clearly a little bit in awe of his boss of, of Byron and he he bases Lord Riven, the the main character, the vampiric character in The Vampire, on Byron's looks, more or less. Um, but in turn, he based that on Glenarvan by Lady Caroline Lamb, who um, had written that about Byron, sort of not very secretly about Byron, after her dreadful sort of dramatic relationship with him. So, yeah, so, so By- it's all Byron's fault, basically. <laughs> It's yeah. If if Byron hadn't been Byron, vampires might have been very very different because it, yeah, it it more or less just came on from that. There were um, people because it's a good look anyway. You know, oh, yeah. it's it's a well put together dramatic debonair look. So there was no real reason to change it. So it kind of stayed like that. So yeah, Byron is really the epitome of the original vampire. That's beautiful, and of course he was very popular at the time. This very kind of charismatic man. So you've got this, uh, this wonderful, it's almost a catchphrase at this point. You've got t-shirts. In what way was Byron a fuckboy? <laughs> yeah, my Byron was a fuckboy t-shirt. Um, I need one of those, yeah. <laughs> you can also get them in Rossetti flavor because I'm not keen on Rossetti either. Oh, well, um, he was also a fuckboy. <laughs> he was a massive fuckboy. Um, <laughs> so, oh God, there's not many ways that Byron was not a fuckboy. Um, <laughs> It, there isn't that said that said um one important point here i discovered really recently that the term fuckboy actually comes from black slang used for men who are just general lame you know generally lame okay. um it's an ensuing white audience that's come afterwards that have sort of translated it in you know sort of patronizing way i suppose to mean sort of a male male slut one you know gives women the run around and takes what he wants and leaves and that sort of thing sure, um sure. so yeah there's a little bit of i'm a little bit dubious about the origins of this phrase now but as we all know what it means we'll just run with it so um <laughs> yeah so yeah my my um my byron was a fat boy motto he he just was i mean for somebody who really did accidentally find the the modern vampire um he was obviously in Geneva at the weekend of 18, 18 16, when they had the stormy, it, it was the, the year without summer, um, when the tambor, Mount Tambor had erupted the year before and had left the entire world under this, most of the world under a cloud of ash and the weather was appalling, millions died over 1815 and 1816. Right, there was terrible famine. Mm, awful because it affected the weather, it affected the crops, it affected everything. Byron wrote um, a poem about it, um, I think I can't remember off the top of my head, but there's a, there's a line in a poem that says a morning came and there and it was still night or something because there was just it was just awful and that's why they were indoors. People think oh it was just a stormy night and they had a thunderstorm they stayed in, but it's because it's because of the after effects of Mount Tambora. So yeah. they so Byron was already at the villa with Polidori and Shelley and Mary um, Godwin famously turned up who, who eventually became Mary Shelley um, with her stepsister Claire Claremont um, and they they had traveled across to see Byron because Shelley was good friends with Byron and Claire Claremont had hung a lot come along ostensibly to act as a French t- translator because she spoke French better than they did but more because she had a massive crush on Byron and she really really wanted to get it on with Byron um, he didn't ever really think that much of Claire Claremont I don't think you know he once called her that odd headed girl um but he did indeed get it on with Claire um presumably just because she was there and and um 
and it was dark and boring and what else can you do so claire became pregnant and she was the mother of his daughter allegra um but byron had left uh, left claire before allegra was born um and it was made very clear to her that he was going to have nothing to do with her or the baby um ironically claire ended up sending allegra to live with her father because it was either that or risk the being ostracized for being a single mother Mm-hmm. So she ended up sending this poor baby girl to live with Byron, um, for, only for Byron to send her to boarding school because he'd got no room in his life to look after a daughter. Um, and then you've got Caroline Lamb, who is always, to my ire, um, portrayed as the crazy ex-girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, I don't think she wasn't. She, I mean, Caro had issues. We cannot get around that fact. She had massive issues. But that's partly because she clearly had um chronic anxiety she had some she had depression she was left on her own for a long time she was never educated despite being bright she was shipped around between family she went to stay with her aunt or i think her aunt the duchess of devonshire anyway georgiana and um she went to stay with them for a bit where she was completely unsupervised um and she was a handful but she wasn't the person that you know people portray to be and she uh, ran around after Byron and was desperate for his attention and he just mocked and ignored her. Um, but Byron had had a pretty shitty background and although it doesn't excuse, it's one of those things where it's it's not, um, it's an explanation, but it's not an excuse is how I think I put it. Right. Um, because he he had a pretty shitty background. He, he grew up, he had a club foot, that's why he had a limp. Um, and his mother mocked him. It was him and his mother for most of his life on their uh, young life on his own. Um, and um, his mother mocked him for being lame. He, though, in turn, you know, delighted. She was very overweight and he delighted in, in mocking her, her weight and then running away because he knew she couldn't catch up with him. And they were just vile to each other, you know. And so it's no wonder he made inappropriate attachments over the years. He eventually... Um, fathered a child with his own stepsister it's almost certain that he is the father of his stepsister's daughter um and yeah and i i think byron's complicated because it, it in a way it's a good thing he's a good one to tie into vampirism because the whole point of vampires and dracula and everything they are not particularly heterosexual generally vampires mm-hmm. you know even the earlier ones are not overtly heterosexual they are just animals interested in feeding and they don't really care if it's male or female or whatever and i think with byron these days i strongly suspect he would if he was alive today he'd describe himself as pansexual i think he just liked people that he was attracted to Certainly. Um, but in that era you know when he died he was in love with his greek cabin boy who was clearly just after his money and it was really sad but because so, he he was devoted to this this young lad, and um, yeah, so so I think a lot of it comes comes from his sort of twisted, weird attitudes of growing up, not quite fitting the mold because he's got um, a limp. He's you know he's not quite sure of his importance in the world, you know. But everyone says he's how wonderful he is, but actually fancies men as well, and. You know, I think, yeah, I think he just had a really difficult time, but he was entirely a fuckboy. So I'm sticking with the T-shirt. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, like there's nothing wrong with that, you know, um, apart from the stepsister thing. <laughs> but anyway. Ah, yeah. Um, no, in, in their defense, they hadn't been brought up together. They, um, they that were. That does make it a bit better. <laughs> 
hang on, hang on. No, stepsister and half-sister. So he he had a baby with Mary Shelley's stepsister and his own half-sister. Oh dear. Okay. Okay. That's that's worth pointing out because that's another yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so Allegra was the daughter of Byron's half-sister, but she Augusta. But um Augusta and Byron, I think I can't you know, on the spot, I can't remember which was the older. I think Augusta is the older of the two. And they were not brought up together. Okay. Um, they they had completely separate households. They got to know each other as older sort of teenagers. So they you can I mean that sort of thing happens. You can doesn't make it any better, but you can see how it happens. Um, he was certainly he never acknowledged it whilst he was alive, but he certainly did express to friends that he was concerned that the child might be born with deformities because of close breeding and he let on enough for people to to guess that he was Allegra's child so yeah it's um yeah it's a weird one but other than that other than that you know <laughs> other than that <laughs> Good now um of course you you've met, um mentioned obviously you know Byron's this uh this kind of early template for the vampire as, as we kind of recognize it which makes absolute perfect sense so you know him kind of being a fuckboy it makes sense then of course also that as as that vampire kind of developed, it was really associated with uh, this kind of sexual freedom, you know? So how, how do you think, the, uh, and this is probably hopefully an easy question, maybe a loaded one. Uh, how do you think that uh, kind of sexual freedom of the vampire uh, really appealed to, you know, the 19th century, especially to like kind of Victorian society, you have all this repression and then having this, this kind of character who just doesn't play by those rules. Do you think that that was something that they, um, <laughs> I don't know, something they wanted to run with? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Not necessarily for the obvious reasons, because the Victorians were not that repressed. They had to seem to be repressed because that was the public image at the time. Um, This this is what society and Queen Victoria um, and all of those in charge who had the power, um, their idea of what was acceptable publicly was was quite repressed, you know. Um, but humans are humans, and this does not mean that anybody was refreshed behind closed doors at all. Um, it, they just didn't tell you about it because they might get into trouble. So the reason there is n- very little rec- written record of same-sex relationships or you know transgender issues or whatever in that era does not mean they didn't exist. They absolutely existed, um, and there's proof of that. It's just that they couldn't allow it to be found out formally. So, yeah, so I, I suspect because most people were getting it on if they really wanted to, because even back then you could have sex before marriage if you then got married, you know, and women could women could sue men who didn't marry them after they'd had sex. It was a bit of a double edged sword because then they'd get found out that they definitely had had sex with them because they're suing them for it. But um, they could technically sue them. So. It was accepted that people were in relationships, people were um, transgender, people were having same-sex relationships, um, but you couldn't do that publicly. So I'm sure this, um, because even, well, when you when you get to 1872 and you've got Sheridan Le Fanu's, um Carmilla, she's quite overtly a lesbian. Um, this is definitely a female vampire picking female victims and being very intimate with them. Um, and that must have been amazing for women at the time to read that and it be 
a thing because as most people know to this day you know um female same-sex relationships have never been illegal and it, that's not because of queen victoria for whatever people say queen victoria never discussed it never mentioned it she certainly never said it didn't exist um it was actually a side note down to the british government who when they put in rule laws against homosexuality from 1885 onwards they didn't mention women because they didn't um, i am not kidding you here they didn't want to give them ideas they thought if they made it a law women would think about it <laughs> it's like the idea that like sex education now will like make younger people have sex yeah like they hadn't yeah. already considered it <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Literally, Parliament, as recently as 1921, so only 100 years ago, dropped any mention of women out of same-sex laws, laws against same-sex relationships, dropped any mention of women out of it because they didn't want to draw its attention to the public. Um, oh, that's that's how patronising Parliament, can, the British Parliament can be anyway. Um, yeah, so so in, in Britain particularly, because obviously I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm real, I'm being very British-centric here, but that's because a lot of this did start here or in Europe. Um, so I'm sure some of these things were like a massive breath of fresh air. You know, if you were a gay woman, you knew you were. It doesn't matter if you were born in 1820, you knew you were a gay woman. You've already got um, Gentleman Jack and you've got uh, the ladies of Slangoflin that's just mm -hmm. before that and this sort of thing. So people, they were around. Um, so to have Carmilla turn up, who is, you know, clearly intimate with her female victims, um, then, yeah, that must have been an amazing thing. And Dracula is sort of overly attentive to Jonathan Harker and obsessive and, you know, and touchy-feely in a way, even though he is, you know, a creature of the night and is murderous is kind of intimately touchy-feely in a way that human people in that era wouldn't have been able to be publicly mm. um and also it's that thought of um because you have to present a, at least a public face of being quite prim there must have been some level of excitement of the idea of being overwhelmed by something you couldn't control you know, yeah. it's, it's a basic human fantasy that, you know, and it's that excitement versus fear and they're quite a close knit thing sometimes. So, um, yeah. And, and, and also there's an element of he made me do it. You know, you can't be blamed for loose morals if you had no choice in the matter. So exactly. if you're if you're thinking of, you know, if you're being overcome by a vampire and he's going to take you off and have his wicked way with you, then you couldn't do anything about that, could you? So in an era when you could be accused of it being your fault if you gave in, then then I, I guess a, a vampire was a good outlet. Um, so, yeah, I can totally see why. But no, they, they, I think it was just an outside explanation for things that were going on around the back sort of sort of thing. I, I worded that really badly, but you know what I mean? No, not at all. That, I mean, that makes perfect sense, you know. Um, as you say, of course, when people are being blamed for, for this, particularly women, you know, like if anything happens, well, you know, it's probably your fault. Um, having, having that as like a fantasy is like, it's almost like giving you permission to enjoy it. I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily want to compare it to like rape fantasies. It almost makes me think more of like, um, uh, like an S&M kind of situation, you know, like they say that, you know, yeah. like really, like, uh, like really kind of like assertive or powerful women off, often have these kind of uh, submissive fantasies, because, you know, if they're, if they're restrained in some way, then it's like, well, I can't, I can't do anything except for just enjoy this, you know? Yeah. So like it, it continues to be this kind of like, kind of, well, now healthier, I suppose, kind of enduring fantasy. Yeah. But like if, if you there's don't a, have there's a freedom in it, isn't there? There's, it makes there's, sense. There's, 
it gives you some freedom if if you are constantly as, as you say especially in modern times if you're constantly responsible for an awful lot of stuff and everything sits on your shoulders then that um situation where you are completely out of control within and and this is the thing with in in modern sort of bdsm same as in a lot of vampire movies it's within a safe sort of scenario mm-hmm. because in a, in a lot of the stories even the old ones you know these women are clearly having a wonderful time <laughs> yes so they're being given permission to they've got no choice in the matter but it's marvelous as well so it, it's as imagine for the time it would have been a lot of women's sort of fantasy to do that because you wouldn't be able to admit to that otherwise so yeah absolutely I, I think it's a, it's a fairly natural reaction I think to, and, and that also ties back into what you said earlier about um the not having the morals Dracula doesn't care what the newspapers think of your behavior does he so he, you can as far as he's concerned you can do what you like and he isn't going to judge you even though the the public might right so, it's not like he reads like the gossip columns or whatever he doesn't care yeah he's not gonna look at buzzfeed or you know Instagram. <laughs> he he's it's it's way below him he, he just doesn't care so so yeah I, I, that, it's that thing where and and also that that whether male or female whatever the gender connection between the vampire and a victim the the thought that something wants you that badly it might kill you terrifying in reality but as um a sort of ephemeral idea as a hypothetical idea that's kind of amazing you know because everybody wants to be wanted in some way or another um or most people do whether it's by vampires or sexual partners or anything you know everyone understands that feeling of wanting to be wanted um so if a vampire just cannot control themselves then you really are hot aren't you you know that's confirmation oh yeah (laughs) you're seriously hot if a vampire can't control himself so yeah of course and and velvet and bats yeah and gary oldman it sounds incredible and gary oldman yeah absolutely (laughs) so of course you know this really it's it's captured so many people's imaginations and there are so many different interpretations of vampires as as we've been talking about and then of course you know after stoker then you know it really exploded and you know you have the vampire and in all of these in all of these different ways throughout media although you know you mentioned in your book about this kind of vampire fever in glasgow that did not necessarily go in the same way tell (laughs) us about that Right, so I've got a piece of paper with the dates on it because this is all very specific, right? Because this had hugely far-reaching effects. So in um, 1954, in September 1954, um, room in Gorbals, an area of Glasgow that was quite poor at the time, and it's, it's the home of the Glasgow Necropolis, the massive, amazing-looking graveyard, um, rumours had started spreading around local schools about a vampire with iron teeth who killed local children. With iron so, teeth? Yeah, yeah. Now this comes there's this comes back on itself. This is relevant in the end, the INT. So remember the INT. Okay. So so children, as children want to do, started talking about um this vampire with iron teeth that had apparently, allegedly had killed two children locally and was out looking for, for more victims. Nobody had been able to, nobody could find records of these children that had supposed being been killed. And whilst I was writing the book, I did some investigation into the death reports for that year as well and found nothing nothing tied into this so pretty sure to these two children never died um and it was just school school grand gossip school playground gossip 
the difference was that this story spread like wildfire um, because children gossip and in those days everyone lived closer to everyone else and and it went around all of the schools so by the end of September the the playgrounds were a frenzy of kids um talking about this vampire and what the, what the, were they going to do about this vampire and kids in this way you know get excited don't they and they wanted to go and sort it for themselves so on the night of Thursday the 23rd of September I think it was um the children decided to meet at the necropolis um and hunt the vampire um and as the um it, it get noisier and noisier and people started noticing something was going on the police were called and there was literally hundreds of children running around the Glasgow necropolis some of them I mean they were down the ages were down to toddlers because in those days I presume you know people were too busy with trying to stay alive to worry so much about you know and we're in the slums even in the 1950s so a lot of kids were being dragged around by their siblings or whatever so there was kids as, as young as sort of toddlers up to sort of 10 11 years old running around the necropolis in the middle of the night some of them with weapons some of them had brought dogs um you know and and the police had to be called and oh this, my God. yeah and 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 this had all come from a, from a playground rumor that had just got out of hand so um it was such a big deal that the daily mirror which is a massive tabloid in in the uk and has been for a long time the daily mirror reported it a couple of days later and i've got the headline written down here um amazing scene as hundreds of children storm a cemetery and the subheader read the toddlers joined in um to show how far the excitement has spread so um the author of the article described it as a stupid tale you know and and dismissed it but he also added himself he, he gets quite dramatic I've, I've written some quotes down here and he he writes in his article in September 1954, I walked through the cemetery as darkness was falling. Little boys and girls clung to my coat and shouted, have you come to shoot him, mister? Kill him so we can sleep tonight. You know, and, and this was reported in the Daily Mirror. So, so by now it's in the national press. This has gone from Glasgow school playgrounds to the national press. Um, and it got bigger and bigger. And other papers started picking up on it. So for kind of not really obvious reasons i think somebody just had a bit of a grudge um the glasgow educational officer decided it was the fault of imported horror comic books um and decided they'd gone beyond the realms of what was acceptable and he wanted the government to step in um local mothers were interviewed in papers and gave their opinion on the the dread threat of, of american horror comics so it's all the fault of the americans this is and um and um so, and I've written down another quote here. A local mother quote was quoted in the newspaper saying, all the children around here read those horror comics. Last night, my seven-year-old son ran home sobbing and pleaded with me to close every window. If we didn't, he said, the vampire will get us. So the Daily Mirror ran with this. They'd realised a good story. They got a journalist on the spot and they just, they kept going and they were building up the um, ban, the horror comics type um, headers. So and and it was really being laid at the at the feet of imported American comics. So by October, um, a family of travellers nearby had been threatened. They'd had stones thrown at their caravan, and whether it was even to, connected to the original kerfuffle or not, I do not know. But um, some kids threw stones at some travellers in a caravan and taught, said there were witches and this sort of oh. thing. Um, and the same rep the reporter for the mirror proclaimed in the newspaper um horror comic hysteria strikes again here tonight 
Um, so this all picked up. By this point, the, the national newspapers are saying that American horror comics are to blame for the action of all these children in Glasgow's necropolis. But what nobody had thought to check, apparently, or just ignored it because it didn't make such a good story, it was that on the national curriculum for Scotland at the time was a uh, poem called Jenny with the Iron Teeth, um, written in 1879 by a chap called Alexander Anderson. Um, I've got it written, and I won't even remotely attempt to do a Scottish accent because I'm not that patronising. But <laughs> most Scottish kids of the age of the ones that were running around the necropolis would have been studying this poem at some point, you know, in fairly recently to when it happened. So there's so Jenny with the iron teeth. So we've got iron teeth again. Um, says, "Mercy me, she's at the door. Hear me lift the snack. Wished and cuddle mummy new close around the neck." And um, so Jenny with the iron teeth presumably is the root cause of this iron-toothed vampire that was going round, um, supposedly going around the necropolis. But it built to the point where it did end up in government, um, being heard by Parliament, the complaints. So by November that year, there was, um, they were basically, re they'd realised that they were going to have to decide what constituted obscene in order to ban it, because that's what they were going to try and ban it under is the Obscenity Act, um, which they couldn't do because obscene is accepted. It only really applied to publications that were graphically sexual. Mm. But so but that didn't mean they were going to let it go. So even Churchill, Winston Churchill was sent samples of these comics, um, cowboy comics, Frankenstein, Captain Marvel was one of the ones they were really worried about. OK. Um, and it ended up in the Children and Young Persons Harmful Publications Act of 1955, which was prompted almost entirely by the Gorbals vampire incident. Um, and it states, hang on, I've got a quote, any book magazine or other light work which is of a kind likely to fall into the hands of children or young persons and consists wholly of mainly of stories told in pictures, with or without additional written matter, being stories portraying commission of crimes, acts of violence or cruelty, incidents of a repulsive or horrible nature in such a way that the work as a whole would tend to corrupt a child or young person. So it's still in force today, believe it or not, that what? law. It's very rare that it's used, probably because of the vagueness, um, because it would be quite difficult to prosecute underneath it. Um, interestingly, though, that came a year after um, America started kicking off about um, comics and cowboys with their guns and zombies and crime and terror. Um, and that was a year before the Gorbals. And that led um, to the creation of the superhero characters that we know today. Wow. So all of this comes from the 50s and this fear of the horror influence. So we had the Gorbals Vampire, which was influenced by an, a, a poem from the 1870s. And you got you ended up with superheroes because of um, one or two politicians didn't like the influence of zombie comics. Um, and I th and I'm, I'm not an expert on comics, but I'm pretty sure that's where Superman started because he was the epitome of good. Um, you lost a lot of the old cowboy and the private eye ones. A lot of those went because they were seen as promoting crime. But all of this went happened in the same couple of years. Um, and because of that, the comic books are blamed for an awful lot of stuff still and for publishing obscene comics. Um, and as recently as 1994, um, a, a comic artist was convicted for artistic obscenity. 
So, um, but he was defended by the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, which was originally sort of founded and partly funded by Neil Gaiman. I don't think he's associated with it now. Um, but they still exist and they, they still have to fight censorship in cartoons. Um, but the reason behind it hasn't changed. It, it, it comes back to a night in the gorbals and a lot of overexcited toddlers. That's incredible. Do you know how many kids were involved? It was in the hundreds. Hundreds. So, yes. so this is what I keep coming back to. I mean, th this whole, this whole story is absolutely incredible, but I, I can't help but think like, you know, it's, it's very convenient to go ahead and like blame this on comics, but the truth is right. So we're talking about hundreds of kids. I mean, it's hundreds of parents let their toddlers leave the house with knives to run around a cemetery. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, but it's American comics and it's not because, you know, like they didn't yeah, notice yeah. that now, like, now, you know, Junior's got a club and he's going to the graveyard. Yeah, this is 1950s Glasgow. <laughs> yes. So, you know, it isn't actually as unlikely as it sounds. It, 1950s anywhere. You know, I live in a, in a relatively small city. Um, but even here then, I mean, my dad would have been a kid then. And I know he used to run around and they always had a pen knife or whatever, because you just did. So and, and actually there is historically um, quite um, a habit of uh, even when I was young in this country. And I think it, it does seem to be quite particular to Britain. We were what we called latchkey kids. You know, you just went out. Oh, and you, sure. let back, you let yourself back in and you finish. So particularly there, and as I said, a lot of, especially in, in the poorer areas, of the big cities at this point, you've got huge families with many, many siblings. And so often the siblings were left to look after the little ones. So if the, if the siblings went out, toddlers had got to go with them. So if the, if the eight, nine-year-old has decided to go out and chase iron tooth vampires around the necropolis, their three-year-old brother's got to go you know, because he's got to take him with him. And then if they've got the family dog, they're going to take that because what eight-year-old wouldn't take their dog if you're going hunting a vampire? No, so I can, I can totally see how it happened. I mean, up until, well, some, some places people would say it still happens now, you know, um, you, you'd have packs of kids roaming until God knows what time. And, and that whether that is a particularly British thing, I don't know, but it, it is a relatively common thing, certainly even within my lifetime, and I'm in my 50s. So, um it, it, but it's interesting that, yeah, as you say, the parents were then immediately, it just shows the difference in the attitudes then, because it, the issue wasn't with them letting their kids out. The issue was with American comics and, you know, the fact that their children were scared. So it hadn't occurred to them that maybe don't let your kids run around in Acropolis in the middle of the night. And also, as an aside to that one, there could have been a, um, a root cause of that story taking hold. There was a massive, I think it was steelworks or an ironworks behind the Acropolis. Um, so when it was all fired up and hammering and bearing in mind that the air quality was terrible, everything was foggy and musty and, you know, and, and you were getting into autumn, it would light up from behind, you know, there are, there are contemporary accounts from the time of people saying how spooky it was around there because the necropolis oh, would light gosh. up from behind with the red furnaces. Quite theatrical, isn't it? You can see it like yeah. a movie. Yes, yeah, so you can see why over-imaginative kids who have read a story about an ogress with with iron teeth wow. might decide that that's running around their necropolis and they better go and find it that's but, amazing. but it did lead to the downfall of, of a lot of comics which is a shame <laughs> right and but then in a in a roundabout kind of way as, as you've um you've explained so well you know of course we have like superman and we have all these these superheroes now so like they were kind of created as like a response to you know vampires to zombies weirdly specifically but yeah so which which brings us back to revenants and stuff so we're going around it comes around in circles all the time so yeah it, it was it was 
private eyes and zombies and um, crime in general as well, they didn't like. And um, so, yeah, the, the response to that was to, to sort of force the industry to start creating superheroes. And that's where you get your superheroes uh, mostly start coming from around that era. Um, because they are the good guys. They are. They are. If, if you think before that, a lot of characters are not good guys. Private Eyes were well dodgy, you know, and um, <laughs> and and zombies were just scary, and cowboys and Indians, which are totally unacceptable these days. But back there, even back then, were shooting each other. You know, um, the portrayal was awful, but they were shooting each other all the time. So that was stopped. So that's where you start getting people like superman who is a good guy who's going to save everybody and bring peace to the world and um it's a sort of kick back to the fear of a load of kids in a glasgow cemetery in 1954 <laughs> that's unbelievable it's the kind of thing you could you could put it on tv and like no one would believe it it's incredible yeah yeah absolutely people would think you were being ridiculous if you tried to say that but yeah it's but it, it really uh, happened, yeah it, yeah i'm not no comic expert but, that, but so i can't remember the specific ones that started immediately after that but a lot of the ones that we know and love today came off the back of that yeah absolutely oh that's amazing and then of course the the highgate vampire is the one that more people i think have probably heard of um but that that was the the beginning of the 70s wasn't it yeah that was the mid to late 70s and uh, the mid 70s um and uh, really the Highgate vampire boils down to two people having um, an argument when each wanted to be the better. Um, and you've got Sean Manchester and I can't remember the other chap's name off the top of my head. I'm just looking it up. It was um, Ferrant, wasn't it? Yes, Ferrant. Yeah, Ferrant and Manchester. Right. And um, the one had seen, Ferrant had seen um, what he believed to be a ghost through the gates of Highgate Cemetery. Um, and the newspaper started saying that, talking about vampires or whatever. And I think, I'm pretty sure he always insisted, um, to, they're both dead now, they're both not long dead. And um, he always insisted that it wasn't, but he didn't know, and this, that and the other. And I think Sean Manchester basically ran with it and decided it, there were vampires there and he was in charge. It it's ended up with this this weird duel in the media for years. And all the time it's and, and literally a duel at one point. They were they were going to get TV cameras and stand together in Highgate Cemetery and summon things, see what they could summon. And I don't think they even turned up. Oh. Um but um so, so between them it built them a lot of publicity, each of them, for different reasons. Um they sued each other variously over the years and fell out in the press and threatened each other physically and all the rest of it. Um, and it, it sort of, it, all of that, these two men having this sort of weird childish argument built up the myth of the Highgate vampire. Um, now I've been round Highgate several times through the old bits and the newer bits and, and all of the creepy bits, spoken to the staff, spoken to everything. There's nothing horribly creepy about Highgate. Highgate is possibly my favourite cemetery in the entire world. You know, it's it's amazing. It's the most amazing place in the world. Um, and I think that comes back as well. To, it, it's Anyone who's been there will know it, it's right in the middle of the city, really. It, was, it wasn't originally. It was obviously Middlesex was still a county and they were. it was a village. But now it is literally up a main road and round the corner and then suddenly you're in this huge expanse of this amazing green cemetery. So I'm sure people would love to think that something was wandering the, you know, the, the cemetery at night. Um, but I'm friends with the staff these days and I'm pretty sure they'd, tell, they'd have told me if they'd met anything down there um, 
on their checks so and as far as I'm aware they've never noticed anything untoward you know so so no so but it, it it's a aesthetically pleasing cemetery as well you know you've got Marx Karl Marx is buried there and and all sorts of famous people Malcolm McLaren's there as well and um so all sorts of old and new Liz, Lizzie Siddle Percy Shelley's um yes not Shelley I've gone on, on to Shelley Rossetti Rossetti um Rosetti's muse and um I've got me fuck boys mixed up then because I've been talking so <laughs> easy to do. I know I, I've got such a list of fuck boys and um you know Lizzie uh, Siddle's there and interestingly Lizzie Siddle's buried there she's not on the on the tourist tour but that because I know them they very kindly took me to see her grave and um she's buried with Rosetti's family who hated her oh. um they hated it and she's another one that's got a fascinating vampiric backstory and you may already know this one um but Rossetti in a fit of um dramatic grief when she was buried I mean I think I personally think it was more like guilt because he was pretty terrible to her um threw in with into her coffin well threw in or or tucked into her long hair or you know reports vary um the book of poetry he was working on at the time Mm. um Seven years after she was buried, his agent, he'd, he'd got writer's block, and his agent suggested that maybe they should dig her up to get the poetry back. Right. Uh, and um, so Rossetti, being a chicken shit, would not go and watch it, watch her being dug back up. So he sent the agent and other people. And um, I think he was just too scared that she'd come after him. And, uh, <laughs> And it's just so, and so she should have done. But anyway, that's another story. So, <laughs> so the agent was sent to oversee this and, and get the book out and this, that and the other. Um, and it was all pretty terrible because the book had obviously been in a sealed coffin with a rotting corpse for seven years and it was in a terrible condition. It had to be taken off to be disinfected and insects taken out of it and all sorts before they could even have a look at it. Right, they had so, to like dry it out, didn't they? It was a whole yeah. process. Yeah, I think there's literally two or three pages left in existence now because it fell apart. Oh, um, and um, so the agent, in order to try and calm his sweating client's nerves, um, told him that not to worry because Lizzie um, had gr- her hair had grown in the time she was in the coffin and her long red hair now filled the coffin. Um, and so and it must have really hit home with Rossetti because he went and got got buried about 100 odd miles away when he died. Um, <laughs> as, as he was the, he's the only one in the Rossetti family that isn't buried with his wife so oh, you know he went he went and got buried elsewhere and left her with the family that didn't even like her um <laughs> presumably because he thought he'd been told that you know she'd survived beyond death and was presumably waiting for him so if there's anyone stalking Highgate it's Lizzie and I think she's entitled to a revenge so we, I think we'll leave her in peace to be honest yeah no fair enough my god like thanks dickhead like he's, <laughs> he's like that that kind of bad in life anyway and as you mentioned of course he was he was quite a fuck boy and he wasn't particularly nice to her uh no. so you can see why you know he might be a yeah, little I think, worried I think, I think if lizzie decides to rise from the dead we should all just let her be let her get on with it crack well, on you know no it's fine now that that would make an incredible book you know if somebody <laughs> wanted to pick that one up my oh, god can you, can you imagine messing with that story Christ, you know where to start. <laughs> oh dear yeah that's so funny yeah I um I referenced that that whole thing in uh in my book Sleeping Evie uh which is actually a historical romance novel so um if anybody's read that uh all four of you <laughs> you, you might <laughs> recognize that story that's kind of oh, that's interesting about. because I've actually got that on my kindle and I haven't read it yet oh have you oh there you go okay so it's on my you kindle, might enjoy so it's not, 
I shall read it now and think uh, think about Lizzie while I'm reading it. So, oh, sure. Yeah. yeah, there's a there's a little there's a little reference to that in there. And uh, of course, Jane Morris is there and everything. And oh, there's brilliant. some kind of cameos towards the end. But uh, but they're they're very much fictional. So uh, <laughs> no vampires, unfortunately, although if I thought of it, I, uh, I probably would have worked it in. Although I will mention, of course, uh, to bring it back to the Highgate vampire, you know, that that came out later on. But then in that book, I took a little bit of, you know, kind of artistic license and I kind of pretended that it was like an older myth. So they're talking about the Highgate vampire like in the 1870s, the idea being that, you know, like the guys in the 1970s kind of got the idea from somebody else. And for anybody listening, that is not historically accurate. I just made that up because I thought it was cool. Uh, oh, <laughs> so. but, but the thing is, an awful lot of stories have just been made up. A lot of this history, and I'm doing rabbit ear quotes as I'm saying that, has been made up and filled and the gaps filled in by people over the centuries so given that we are talking about what is technically never i would never guarantee it technically a fictional creature anyway whatever you say about them could be true so it doesn't matter it, it's all potentially true and as I said, there's no desperately correct template for it anyway so maybe yours did exist maybe it did i kind of like that that's good you're giving me more credit than i probably deserve <laughs> Okay, so, right, so you have the um, the idea there that, you know, like maybe vampires do exist. Do you think they do? Do I think the vampires exist? Um, no. Um, yes and no. I th- do you know what? I won't be quiet then because I have to think about that. Um, do I think, which is weird for somebody who's written a book about vampires, isn't it? Do I think the vampires exist? No, not in the way that they are portrayed, no. What I do think is a very real thing, genuinely, and I'm not using it as a euphemism, is the whole idea of um, emotional vampires. Yes. Um, and energy sucking vampires. And anyone who's watched the TV adaptation of What We Do in the Shadows with Colin Robinson. Oh my God, we've all met Colin. <laughs> Everybody yeah. knows a Colin. <laughs> yeah, everyone knows a Colin Robinson for some reason. And they never tell you why. Yeah, you know, they use his full name, don't they, through the whole thing. And it somehow seems to suit him. Yes. He's a Colin Robinson. <laughs> um, and yeah, everyone's met a Colin Robinson. You know, everyone knows one or have dated one or have, have just been in the company of one and you just want to die because... Oh my God, yes. Or, or you've, you know, unfortunately, some of us have lived with lived with Colin Robinsons and you re- <laughs> you don't realise... I know, I know, I, I've been alive a long time and should know better by now. But um, you don't realise until after their influence got, goes how much you were, the life was being sucked out of you until you get the life back. Right, you don't um, realise it until you leave. No, and, and it works in exactly the same way in that they clearly get some level of power from doing that. So whether it's in an emotional or literally energy sucking, because I do think energy can be a physical thing in a lot of ways you know you can feel your energy being sapped by Colin Robinson and you can feel that f- physically can't you so um I um I think that definitely definitely exists um where the interesting thing is the Im- immortality thing is interesting because we have got used to the idea that life is a finite thing but as going back to the Sumerian kings I mean the king list I mean we've got people who are living hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years so who's to say they that wasn't right at that time so because we're getting into sort of evolution theories and stuff like that which gets complicated but what I am very interested in is the idea that maybe 
I, we, we we evolved as far as I'm concerned we evolved but maybe we're not the first lot that did it you know and maybe this all happened before and before and whatever and we could be this however many incantate incanta can't remember my words now incant, um incarnation I'll get there eventually of humanity so who's to say that at some point people did not live longer you know maybe the Sumerian kings were right and they may not have lived till 800 or whatever they were but maybe they lived to 150 or 200 because that's not far past the realms of our abilities now and maybe what we're thinking of and why people always come back to vampires is some innate animal instinct that's coming back from our lizard brain you know um and maybe there is something in there or maybe it is just the fact that humanity is a humans are a prey animal you know mm-hmm. humans are a prey animal so maybe it is more the fact that um that you know in in the face of something that is immortal and can't be harmed and and could kill you as soon as look at you maybe we just turn into frightened little rabbits in a in a headlight um so we have to make it a bit more palatable but that's kind of part of the excitement of it you know it's, it's the unknown isn't it? and also um i'm on a ramble now but immortality there's a lot of store put by the idea of being immortal and as poor old david barry found out in the hunger which is one of the greatest movies ever regardless i think roger ebert said it was a sex a good sex scene with a bit of a movie tacked around it or something like that Um, (laughs) exactly where's the problem look at them where's the problem but um has he discovered you know he thought he was immortal he was but what he didn't have was immortal youth he had immortality but he didn't have immortal youth and that's what is the crunch point really i think for a lot of people but yeah so do i think they exist i would come down on the side of i don't know i wouldn't like to guarantee it <laughs> okay yeah that's very good and, and as you say of course with the energy vampires unfortunately they do exist exactly uh, and what do, it depends on your interpretation of what you mean by vampire doesn't it because yeah even with the ones we've talked about today who are technically classical vampires some of them are doing it with a hair and some of them are doing it with a chicken under their armpit so <laughs> there are all different kinds of ways to be vampires yeah you know so why can't colin robinson be the true vampire you know so it, yeah it's not a set thing it just isn't god yeah he probably is so here's another kind of weird question out of out of left field asking for a friend uh if <laughs> if vampires were real in this um in this kind of traditional kind of like sexy way, right? Like a kind of Gary Oldman, Bella Bogosi type. Uh-huh. Like, so there, a lot has been said about like how to repel vampires, all these things that, you know, they're supposed to keep them away. You know, you've got your, your garlic and your holy water and your mustard seeds on the doorstep and all this stuff. But how would you attract them if, if one were to try to attract a, a Gary Oldman kind of vampire? How do you think you would do that? So what you're asking, Jess, is how you're going to catch Gary Oldman, isn't it? Here, yes, How, <laughs> yes yeah. that's exactly what I'm asking. This is, this for is a friend, <laughs> yeah, for a friend called Jess. Um, <laughs> so I think, honestly, I think it's fairly obvious you would ignore them, or you would just not care, because my favourite interpretation of Lucy Westerner's character literally does this in the BBC adaptation of it, the one that Mark Gattis and Stephen Moffat did a couple of years back now. Um, and Lucy um, is a young mixed race party girl, you know, and, and Dracula's fascinated by her. He just thinks she's amazing. He's, he's still fairly willing to kill her, but, you know, he's as fascinated by her as he has ever been by anybody, really. Um, and she's the Lucy Westenra in this thing. Um, and what he 
is so attractive. He's like a moth to a flame. It's so cleverly done. It's because she's utterly nihilistic. She does not care. You know, she wants him to feed off her. She wants him to take her literally, physically, you know, mentally, everything, because she doesn't care. Um, And he's never had that happen. People are, they're scared of him or they're sexually attracted to him, but they're frightened at the same time. And this Lucy just doesn't care. I just thought that was the cleverest twist Um, because that would be the only thing you could do is be the opposite. You know, um, in in a way, it's kind of a version of Stoker's Mina Harker in that Gary Oldman, you know, because let's face it, we're thinking about Gary. Gary can't stay away from Mina Harker because... um, well, in that one, she's she's the reincarnation of his lost love, but she is also the purest thing that she would never go near him. She would never want him, you know, because he's the monster and he she's the pure beauty and whatever. So they would go for the opposite. So basically, I think what you need to do to get Gary Ullman's vampire is to hop on him and look really excited about him and let him crack on. That's great advice. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh my god! I think just go for it. I just think because he won't be expecting it, right? It's, it's nobody. It's like the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects Jesse nobody jumping expects vampire. It. Just yeah, just like hey, yeah, let's do this. That's hilarious. Oh my god. Okay, so what is it about vampires that that appeals to you most? Do you think? So of course you have to be crazy about vampires to to want to write a book like this. So, so what is it that really, you like about them? You have to be really stupid to write a book like this because <laughs> it's my favorite topic of all time, and I turned it into the most stressful job that I could have ever given myself because I, there's so much of it. I mean, in in a lot of ways with it I'm so proud of the book I'm so thrilled it'd be the one time the the thing I'm most proud of forever because it's just my favorite thing and I'm so pleased and so grateful to my publishers pen and sword who let me do it you know they were they were keen from the outset and they they really let me crack on with it but I was never ever going to fit everything in that I wanted so I had to cut it out and cut bits out and I oh sleepless nights forever um so it was never going to have everything I wanted in it and and Really, I could have just written 300 pages about how brilliant I think vampires are because it's, I, um, for those who don't know, my website is called Sex, Death, Rock and Roll. And um, these days it's just the URL and that's where all my links are and that's where the details of all my stuff is and how you contact me. But um, it started off as a blog years ago and it really, it is literally, that encompasses my favourite, most interesting things in life. You know, because as I always say, sex and death are the two things that affect absolutely everybody, everybody, whether you have sex or not, you were you were born of it, even if it was within a test tube, you know, it it is uh, an echo of the basic human function, you know, and we're all going to die. So taxes appear to have got a bit more optional these days for certain people, but um, (laughs) sex and death are are, are unavoidable. They are going to happen. And and as I always say, music makes the journey a bit more fun on the way. So, So sex and death are they they fascinated me because firstly as i said they're the two things you cannot avoid as a human being also they're the two things people are most likely to shy away from um and i don't know why whether it frightens them because it's so animalistic i don't know also i think people can't quite get their heads quite often around the idea that the two things are so tightly intertwined you know that that urge and there's a reason they call orgasm le petit more isn't it actually i think that's a myth and that nobody's ever called it that but i like that one so i'm sticking with it um yeah. you know, the little the, the little death um 
there's a reason for that because for for a few seconds you're you're completely out of your head and you're not with it and you don't know what you're doing and um and that's amazing and of course people are fascinated by death because nobody knows what it's like because by the time you know what it's like you can't tell anybody so i suppose vampires tread that line between the two um we can't escape it but so we try to hide from it automatically and also it boils down to the fact that they have the best outfits um of, of any of the fictional or semi-fictional characters i mean i everyone jokes and, and i'm renowned as a goth but i cannot be bothered to dress up 99 percent of the time i don't have the time or the energy so it would be lovely to think that you know if i was a glamorous immortal i mean i'm assuming here that i would just wake up fully dressed in flowing gowns perfect eyeliner you know my crumbling mansion would have been I don't, do you sweep crumbling mansions but it's it's it would have all been done and i'll just be automatically immortal and glamorous and just amazing and probably look like vampira but you know yeah that'd be that'd be amazing like if it's all just like taking care of you it's like this you're, you're taking care of for you i should say it's like um the kind of ultimate like magic makeover like some people yeah. want to be cinderella you know and like i yeah. want like nadia's wardrobe from what we do in yeah. the shadows, you know? can be Nadia. I'll, I'll be elvira you know and, and yeah. that, that'll be it and we can go we can go crime busting or something together but God, is yeah if we can just wake up like that one morning that would be brilliant right but the truth is like if i woke up as a vampire i'd probably dress be dressed like i am now like you know i mean i don't know i always kind of thought of myself as a goth or whatever i mean like i've got like the tattoos and the eyeliner and everything but like today like i need to brush my hair and i'm wearing like a t-shirt with cerberus on it you know what i mean like i'd probably like wake yeah. up like that and i'd be like where's my velvet yeah i'm you sitting know? here with, i'm sitting here with hair that needs a good brush and a pogues t-shirt on so yeah. you know when, <laughs> and, and you know i'm aware that i'm saying this for podcast but i am sitting in pajama bottoms because this is zoom and it's the 21st century thank no, you no of course much. obviously <laughs> i mean i mean the nightmare before christmas ones but i have got pajamas on um so yeah we'd be rubbish rubbish vampires probably but we'd have a huge amount of fun Oh God. Yeah. It's just, just like a whole different generation of vampires. Now I love that connection with the, with the music, especially like the kind of punk goth scene. I mean, like, I feel like we're both very much kind of a part of that. And I mean, we could talk about music like all day long, but uh, the one kind of tie in that I thought about, like right before I got you on here, I remembered this article that I read a few years back. There was, and I'm, I'm sure you already know all about this in Monmouth since the eighties, there's been this rumor that there's this vampire, like the Monmouth vampire. And it finally came out just a couple years back that um, there is no vampire. It was actually just Dave Vanian. Did you see that? <laughs> that comes. I haven't seen that story. Hang on two, two seconds. I'm going to let my cat out. I've got a giant cat. Oh yeah, you're fine. Oh, they've been trying to get out for the last 10 minutes and oh poor baby oh that's okay yeah at the beginning of the interview i'm sure people hear noise uh my cat ziggy stardust was was trying to destroy everything in the living room too uh, yeah so the um the story with the the monmouth vampire it's so funny um so apparently like one night back in the 80s uh dave vanian and of course the damned um for anybody listening who isn't familiar with them obviously get familiar with the damned you will not regret it uh they were in monmouth recording an album at the time and, you know, one night it's this, this beautiful full moon and you can, you know, you can go out, you can see for miles. Cause of course Monmouth is very small and uh, Dave Vanian goes out and he goes for this lovely walk and he goes through, you know, kind of like the town, the old graveyard. And uh, a woman was driving down the street at the time 
and she saw him and completely freaked out and thought that she was looking at a vampire because of course like for those of you who are listening who, who are not familiar you've got to google Dave Vanian uh because he looks like a vampire he looks like your your kind of like comic book idea of what a vampire is supposed to look like um so of course she was scared but this happened 40 years ago and he kept completely quiet about it until like last year like he didn't tell anybody I just I'm, I thought that I'm, was brilliant I'm not remotely surprised by that actually because firstly Dave Vanian is the reason I've got a white streak in my hair Oh yeah, I was obsessed with Dave Vane in the Damned as a, as a kid, and well, in my teens. And um, I first bought a Damned single when I was given a Damned single when I was ten, I think. So I've been with him pretty much since the start. Oh, um, okay. And um, so, and he's yeah, he's the reason I've got a white streak in my hair. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't know. I didn't know that it had just that I just come out, but I am not remotely surprised because I know Monmouth. Um, it's Rockfield Studios, which is just outside it, which is an infamous studio. I think it might be. Right, that's school. the one. Yeah, and Rockfield's amazing. It's it's basically a big farm, and the farmers converted it, and they've still there's, there's actually photos of Dave Vane on their horse, full <laughs> garb and everything, but they got him on their horse, you know, and he's just sitting there looking a bit stiff. Um, and I think it might have been Strawberries they were recording there. I can't remember. But, um, yeah, he always did just look like that. And Monmouth is a small place. I drive through it occasionally. Um, and it is a small South Wales large town. Or is it Wales? It might be back in England. Then it's it, The England-Wales border is weird right now. And, um, and somebody's going to shout at me now because that should be really obvious to me, probably, because I'm not actually that far away. Um, but yeah, no, I, no, I can totally see that happening. So, Mon, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that Dave Vane is the Monmouth vampire actually, because Monmouth needs some vampires. Monmouth's a very cool little town actually. I mean, it's used to it. It's had Primal Scream living in there. It's had all sorts of people living in Monmouth. So, because of the Rockfield Studios around the corner, um, people, you, you know, literally turn up and, and sit in the pubs and whatever, all the big name bands stuff. So, Monmouth's a bit more used to it these days. So, but maybe back then they weren't quite so much and. Um, she was a bit shocked these days they'd just be like oh god there's another band in town you know um but yeah the fact that Dave Vanian has been listed list, accidentally listed as an actual vampire for years pleases me no end I just think that's incredible <laughs> I mean I don't think I'd, I'd want to tell anybody you know you just kind of have that satisfaction but then like after that first time of like somebody actually mistaking you for one like I don't think that I could resist the temptation to like do it on purpose you know like as you're kind of traveling around the world like try to start that rumor in a couple places you know just yeah. kind of like hang out around the corner yeah, absolutely. That would be amazing. There's a, there's another life goal to add to my list. Oh, that's incredible. That's what we'll do when we're actually vampires. Brilliant. Yep, you're on. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, you've been so amazing with your time today. Thank you so much for this incredible conversation. I mean, I feel like I could talk to you for like the next 10 years, uh, but we'll have to get you back at some <laughs> point. Of course, I should let you uh, carry on if I have some more tea. Uh, but before we go, um, so what what is next for you? Where can we find you? All that good stuff. Um, you can find me is, is Twitter and Instagram is the easiest. I'm at Violet Fern, just straightforward on both of those. And I'm active on both of those. Um, on my website links from those sex, death, rock and roll, where you can buy your, your Byron was a fuckboy t-shirt and other, Excellent. other, te- other fuckboys are available. Um, my, <laughs> I've got another book out. Sorry. <clears throat> oh, I sneezed right at the end. Look, I oh, did bless so you. Well. We made it all the way to the end. <laughs> we made it all the way to the end, and then I sneezed. And I've even done my hay fever tablets today. Um, oh dear! I've got a, um, a new book out next year. Uh, my third history book, which is Sex, Drugs, and Proxy Rule: um, Secrets and Scandals in Regency Britain. I'm so excited uh, about that one. 
that 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 I'm I'm looking forward to that one because it it actually it surprised me. It covers an awful lot of the people that come up in the books I've written already. I did Sex and Sexuality in Victorian Britain a couple of years back. Yes, I've got and, that one too. It's so good. And then oh, thank you because I like that one because that's a bit of an overview and it's just little bits and that's mm-hmm. why it was interesting. And then then um, Vampire and Popular Culture, which has come out this last year and, and has just done amazingly well. I'm thrilled with it. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, Sex, Drugs and Proxy Rule next February um, and we've got people like the Shelleys and Byron there's an awful lot of Byron in it um, but so you get into the background of how he ended up having an affair with his half-sister and all that sort of thing um, Blake gets mentioned I didn't have a lot of room for Blake and I didn't want to do him disservice so I, it's a very short piece about Blake because I love him mm, yeah. yeah so really into that um, and like all of the books it's written to be entertaining rather than academic it's you know it's educational but hopefully it's fun at the same time so so there's that um i'm currently writing an urban fantasy um based in based in liverpool which is my favorite city in the whole wide world um so there'll be news on that once i've actually finished it because that's always a good point isn't it that's a good start it is and that's the trouble I've been writing this on and off for a long time and I just I realized when I was writing the vampire and popular culture that I'd actually it's not about vampires specifically although there's a lot of undeath in it um and I realized how much I'd kind of picked up and I'd almost got wrong to what I didn't fit together so writing writing vampire and popular culture has meant I've had to go back and rework my fiction because it doesn't fit a lot of things that I now know about other things so it gets very complicated being a writer um but yeah in the meantime I'm just I'm pushing this I'm I'm gonna I think my aim now is is to be mistaken for a vampire I want to be the Dave Vanian of Shrewsbury oh god yeah no that'd be awesome (laughs) well if I I see any articles coming out about vampire sightings I'll keep my mouth shut that I know who it is (laughs) yeah yeah don't or just let slip tiny or it might be and then maybe you know it's good publicity isn't it maybe people think I'm the spooky secret vampire think that you're like actually a vampire a good rumor to have I mean with all the different kind of rumors that people can come up with I mean that's probably the one that you want <laughs> yeah I've had far worse than that I'll stick with vampires yeah brilliant yeah we'll take it that's great <laughs> I mean as you mentioned you've already got the perfect hair I mean you're halfway there very <laughs> absolutely amazing <laughs> this week I'd like to thank Violet so much for being our guest and once again you can find her at her website at sex deathrockandroll.com. If you can believe it, this interview is actually quite a bit longer than what we've shared today. But if you want to hear the full unedited conversation, God help us, we're posting that to our Patreon as well. So check that out at patreon.com slash dirty sexy history. Now, again, Violet was such a fun guest, and uh, and as you can tell, I really enjoyed that conversation. Uh, and in that extended version, I mean, I think we both probably get a little bit carried away. <laughs> so that is absolutely optional if you want to check that out. But with that mention of Patreon, that leads me to also thank our brilliant patrons, of course. So a huge thank you, as always, to Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Akko Spoot, and Sylvia Van Eyck. If you would like to support the show, please check us out on Patreon, or you could also rate, review, and subscribe on the podcasting platform of your preference. 
Try saying that three times fast. (laughs) You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we will, of course, post the photos from this show. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. You can find out more about us in our books, plus five years of blog archives on our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. Have fun this weekend, and remember, there's no such thing as too much velvet. See you next time.